0: You're listening to a Marcus Sahaba online radio podcast. I look forward to this Friday evening, evening, and especially when we have our senior attorney, Ashraf Yusuf, joining us. Ashraf and the Umar. Let me greet you all, all with a hearty as alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And how are you doing this fine, beautiful uh, Friday evening, Ashraf?
1: Wa alaikum <laughs> Shafaj, uh, Jazakallah for asking. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing exceedingly well. And I hope the same is for you and for our dear listeners. Uh, And uh, I don't know how you've been finding the weather. We've actually had hail in the week here in Johannesburg. Uh, In our area particularly, a lot of damage with the hail. Um, Everything from your plants to your windows to roofs uh lots of flooding so we give thanks for everything that has come uh, including the weather Uh, some people will say that um the the weather is a sign of uh global warming others would say it's you know whatever explanation there is but it's interesting to see that it hasn't really warmed up although we now in december you know i mean we're almost two weeks into december it hasn't it hasn't been sufficiently warm shepherd i don't know how you're finding it in uh in durban
0: i tell you durban is relatively drained. uh quite a few days yeah, about three or four days but mostly at night and uh, then uh, yeah uh, usual durban uh, december weather very humid indeed and uh, you know we need to be cool about the whole thing but alhamdulillah i can tell you really uh i'm used to it uh, if you got your air condition but alhamdulillah generally what i do ashraf uh, i sit under a lovely shady tree i really enjoy that and if it's uh that way i mean i i you know we we, 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 we tend to adapt but uh, we are very skeptical of going down to the ocean where you know what's happening and all these sewage and all has flown uh has gone there and things are even getting from bad to worse so uh, i believe yeah we do what we do but i'm uh, used to it i'm uh, actually addicted to Durban weather, you can't uh, take me away from this, uh, the humidity. I, I mean, you you may laugh at that, but it's a, it's a fact. I'm addicted to it. You can't put me anywhere else in the world. Give me this uh, tropical weather. Give me this, uh, you know, in one day, you get four different uh, scenarios because of thunderstorm, and then you get a heat coming through and you get all this clamminess and so forth, Ashraf. So that's uh, in a nutshell how I'm addicted to Durban weather in the Indian Ocean. <laughs>
1: No, that's good to know. Gee Shabbat.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> now, besides the uh, besides the curries and the hot curries and the bunny chows and the fish curry and that kalya that you love, all oh, Durban has it all. Has it all. Well, Ashraf, I, I like the topic that you have chosen uh, uh, for this evening's uh, program. Uh, you know, you'll be discussing Ramaposa's review in the Concord, and I you know it'll be intriguing. But before we go uh, go to that. Uh, I was talking to a senior friend of mine whom I, you know, I, I, I really like. And he's always told me, uh, Shafar. don't mention my name on air. And he made the point. He says, you know, when you look at uh, the World Cup and you see that the playing fields are even where you find uh, Saudi Arabia beat, uh, uh, who was this country, Argentina. And then you find uh, that Tunisia uh, went and beat, uh, uh, they, they, they beat France. And then you found uh, Morocco beating uh, uh, Spain and so forth, you know, you're getting the gist of the whole thing. And he says, like, because the playing fields were equal, you had the opportunity of uh, beating those that were perceived to be mightier than you. Then he says, when you look at the scenario in Qatar, and you look at the playing fields for the countries in the world when it comes to economy or the banking system and that, he says the West is so selfish that they have made the playing fields uneven. Even if you look at the currency uh, that they have made their currencies, the pounds, the dollars, the sterling, to be the de facto uh, currency. If you're traveling, you can't take your currency as a lower nation or someone that's perceived lower or lower than uh, these uh, so-called superpowers. You have to follow the dictates. What's your reaction to that? Uh, you know, when he spoke to me about that, I just could see your face in front of me. And I said, you know what, I have to address this with Ashraf. How would you react to that? Uh, our senior, or the senior individual, or that uh, you know that uh, that I look up to, Ashraf. Uh, I,
1: I think it's a logical um, interpretation or outcome of uh, the capitalist system as we know it. So they would jealously guard whatever the means of exchange to make sure that it all benefits themselves. But Shafat, you know, we mustn't be fooled. A country's currency doesn't determine its strength because all the resources of whatever nation, whether we're down south here where we had the gold deposits, diamond and other precious minerals, we all are forced to sell it through a single banking system a worldwide banking system and then the basket of currencies, you know, there are six um, and all of your trade is determined through that. So for me, it's really just another installment in um, in the manifestation of total power. Uh, and the power is demonstrated through the uh, strength of a particular dollar. Uh, uh, of a particular currency. Now, in truth, the currency it's wor- itself is worth nothing. It is the people's belief in it. Here's a, a good takeaway point. In the last two years, more dollar bills have been printed than ever before. Now, the dollar floods the market, but it is only our perception of its strength or our our belief that this piece of paper represents wealth that allows it to have its strength in perpetuity. The moment people stop believing it, it, it is what it is, it would lose its so-called value. There can't be a better example to this than when the so-called Iraq invasion of Kuwait happened. I mean historically Kuwait was always part of Iraq as we as they were part of a greater uh Ottoman controlled empire and then they were fractured after the collapse in 1923 so so then it it resulted in uh each state having its own national bank national currency national anthem national flag a national army and of course national debt we mustn't forget national debt so at the end of the day when Iraq attacked Kuwait apparently then the Kuwaiti dinar which is today one of the strongest in the world uh, it's like 24 to 1 rand um, was worth nothing it was a piece of paper that you couldn't trade because of the collapse of the nation state so for me, it's really a non-event when we say that there's a level leveling of the playing fields. Um, you know that that now demonstrates the, the the strength of individual so-called Muslim countries. You cannot identify with nationalism, and and uh, and view things through that. It's almost as if we've got to take a jump back, Shafat, and look at how the nations, Allah says I've created you into tribes and nations so that you may learn from one another. How did these nations learn from one another and how were they governed uh, from a really a a small little place called Topkapi Palace? Um, And I mean the Ottoman Khalifa rain from east to west, north to south. And of course, historically, you know, um, when the Berbers went over to Spain and they started conquering Europe, I mean, they ended up right on the doorstep of Vienna. Uh, So historically, I mean, these are all important things, but there was never a currency that was controlled by a a central bank. And each central bank in turn, remember, we spoke of the national debt, Each central bank, in turn, owes a debt to the World Bank. I mean, it was very interesting. There was a report now that Ukraine has been loaned billions and billions of euros. Well, they've been loaned and the loan has to be paid back. Uh, In Africa, a lot of African countries are crippled by just the interest payment on foreign debts. And um, China has very wisely forgiven a lot of these uh, countries, foreign debts. Now, if you're in debt, Shafat, even you as a normal person, if you're servicing a credit card or a bank loan or a mortgage, you know, mortgage comes from mort, which is death. Uh, so so basically you get involved in a, a system of a repayment of a home loan for over 20, 30 years and other assets like a car over five years. I mean, if you're forever in debt. A man in debt can never be, have the freedom of actually realizing that his condition is is supposedly, you know, far, far, he would be far better off without debt. I mean, how do you raise up to be uh, the uh, Khalifa, the, the representative of Allah, if you constantly change, chasing your debt? And then you know side by side is consumerism i mean the world cup is a good example of consumer behavior Um, in fact there was something very interesting coming out of america where somebody had made the observation that um, minor minority communities build schools universities hospitals and grocery stores and then there was an observation that in among certain communities that don't seem to be raising up that they're spending their income on liquor on mercedes benz uh, on 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 a particular sneaker, and there was one other item and so so the person said, "How can we ever arise if we're busy blowing our money and not investing it so i've given you a very broad my response, in very broad terms, to this, I'm saying the bigger picture is that you have to go back to Dinal Islam in its uh, purity, which includes an economic system. You know, we pretend that we we don't have an economic system, that we we happy capitalist chappies, you know, with uh, ser- certain um, vestiges of of Islamic behavior, be it whatever. You want to you want to term that, and we seem to be satisfied to, with that. But we don't realize that uh, kufr is one system and Islam is one system. Shehpa, you know,
0: what I said that you talk about kufr is one system, Islam is one system, and you know, perhaps uh, the living uh, level playing fields would have been there. Is it the gold, the you know, the the, the dinar or the soum, and everyone is on a, a you know equal footing? Forget the dollar and forget the.
1: Hello. Sheva. I, I, I can hear you loud. Can, Sorry, can, we have a break in transmission. It must be all this load shedding going on. OK, uh, I can hear you loud and clear. Ashraf. You can't hear me. No, no. It just broke oh, there. So I can, can hear me. you now. Hear me. It, it, it's fading. Shavad.
0: It's fading. OK, I'm going to do this. And uh, let's see if it works again. Is it working now, Ashraf? Yes, it's
1: just come back on. Yes, yes.
0: All right, lovely. As you said, it's a uh, load shedding and perhaps our topic is too hot to handle for Faruk Bhai or someone like that. Well, look,
1: uh, you know, imagine if you had come with your dollar, pound or euro to Qatar and you had to change it into a a silver dirham and a gold dinar and uh, for loose in copper, and you had to now transact in that coinage, it would have made an impact. It would have made a definite impact in the same way that some people are saying that they are impacted by, for the first time, not seeing, you know, Islam through the eyes of this uh, Western press that has demonized it for, well, not for so long. I mean, from time immemorial, that's why you had the crusades, you know, the the every everything I mean um, from the date of the birth of, of Islam, the dawn of Islam, it was a deen that was opposed first by the Arabs and then uh, later on by others. Just hold on for a second, please. Shafat.
0: OK, Ashraf. Uh, well, uh, as uh, Ashraf says. Uh, well, you know, if you get the gold, the dinar, and imagine if the transactions were done with gold and dinar, and that's real value. The currency that you know is for real. It is not that fake uh, money that you have, the paper money that is all, you know, meretricious. Yeah, it's it, it based on a big lie. But the real value is you've got your gold there, you've got your silver there, and you're bartering, you're talking to people, you're getting real value. Here, the other way is these people that manipulate uh, the world economy or the banking systems of this world they just empower and enhance those people that can store money under their mattresses they just print those dollar bills trillion billion dollars and people have them by their trillions for them it's just one big joke and uh, we are just pawns in the hands and uh, yeah ashraf i wonder what his thoughts will be i mean they're, they're, he knows exactly uh what we're talking about i think you by now should know uh i think ashraf hasn't inc- conscientized us uh, all the time on that ashraf are you back
1: i'm I'm back sorry about that
0: yeah okay no 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 uh, no problem go ahead ashraf
1: so i'm I'm saying yeah you know what i see i hear the observation the level of playing fields of course there there was an opportunity to demonstrate arab hospitality there was food etc some people found that celebration without alcohol is possible Uh, but but you know the world's attention was was drawn to this i just shudder at the amount of money that was spent 220 billion dollars, you know, uh, for for a small state like Qatar. Uh, I mean, for me, it's really an egotistic spend because those stadia will never ever be used, even if you're deconstructing the one that is supposedly built with uh, uh, with uh, reusable material and containers. Really, I, I I don't see I don't see the the benefit in it. Uh, because, you know, just the, there's just such a huge amount of inequality and poverty. Now, taking $222 billion and distributing it to, uh, let's say, um, every Muslim that was available. We put ourselves at $1.7 billion, uh, in the world. You can imagine, just do the math, uh, Shafat how much of money would have been distributed? That would have brought people out of debt, you see. This thing called debt is the antithesis of of growth, you see. As long as you're in debt, you'll never, ever be able to lift your head up and basically, you know, see the bigger picture. So that's just my little observation about this, but uh, I don't want to labor the point.
0: Yeah, I want to take you with me and go to the... Uh... Uh, the qatari embassy yeah or maybe i'll send them a recording of this and say what do you think of this ya Sheikh? in the uh, yomul qiyama when you meet allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there's my friend has whispered this and i think it's a very noble whispering We see what happens and you know as we look at i mean look at the hypocrisy there's so many I you know the bbc and then you find uh, also the uh you know people like uh uh, uh sports stars uh, they are you know Talking against uh, Islam, the talking against uh, Qat- uh, the 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 uh, the, the Qataris, all based on a lie. But when investigations were done, we found that uh, these individuals that are, you know, uh, bringing down uh, uh, the the, the uh, you know the, the Islamic value system, opposing Coma loot and opposing all those other things that are coming through, we find that these individuals were working in Qatar and were earning billions and billions of uh, dollars there in, in salary. But now it, they have jumped onto the bandwagon uh, to perhaps uh, uh, denounce the hands that feed them. How do you react to that, Ashraf? Uh,
1: you see, Shabbat, you, you pointed out hypocrisy, right? I mean, th- th- that is, is clear. But again, it's like Islamic banking. How can a banking system be Islamic when you don't even accept the message of the messenger, who brought the Quran. So, you reject the messenger, and then you say, "Oh, okay. Now we must just take Islamic banking, which in itself is a is an antithesis to the you know uh, proper understanding of the Deen." So, in many many ways, Shafar, I think we need to own up. You know, we've made a, a lot of mess ourselves. You know. By allowing this thing called Islamic banking. And now they celebrate you all over the world. And they say, oh, okay, this is Islamic and that is Sharia compliant. And this is, you know, just start with the opening statement I made some time ago during the show. How is it that there was such an amount of dollars printed, which has got no bearing to any reserves? It's, It's pure printing of paper. I mean, if you don't understand anything, understand this, that riba was prohibited because it created something from nothing. And then the model, be it Islamic or otherwise, that every time I deposit my 10 rand with you, you increase. You, the banker, are able to increase your book and you can lend that out from nothing you can lend that out 27 times now you can see what the effect of that so called lending or investment is when it's multiplied by thousands of transactions daily by millions of people so so you can see again you know the whole fantasy about uh, money and its creation again if you look at it in a very simple way you know then there can be no such thing as an Islamic bank. Now, it's also surprising, or maybe not, that the so-called ulama that have put their names to this, you know, they have signed on it. And they sit on so many banks and they earn huge amounts, not of Islamic currency, dollars. Are you with me, Shafat?
0: Uh, yeah, I uh, hear you loud and clear, Shraf.
1: So... So that's what I'm saying, you see, it's not it's not a system that that you cannot reconcile the two. You've got to go back to Dinal Islam in its pure form, which is a serious exercise, and we can't have snippets and snippets of it, really. I mean, we need to be responsible because it seems to we, we seem to be all imbibing the same narrative. And and it is worrying that people with such intelligence and training and um, you know uh, knowledge are unable to even fathom a simple thing out like this and say but hang on there is something definitely definitely wrong in how we're viewing uh, our our existence you know uh, so so it's 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 serious uh, and it's time that uh, for people to reflect I'm not calling on any leadership to do this. I'm talking about ordinary people because we are not like uh, uh, ruled by a papal democracy. You know, we don't have uh, priesthoods. So I'm talking about a collective examination. An education. A realization. And then action. The action is that you have to understand your purpose of creation. Allah says, I have created man and jinn only to worship me. That is our life task. But worship, you see, we also mustn't mix worship up as saying, okay, I've been to the mosque, I've been to Hajj, um, I've uh, kept my fast. Those are not acts, those are acts of obligation. An act of worship is taqwa, an act of worship is the remembrance of the creator in every condition and it has to arise from people of understanding and knowledge that we have a role to play. In fact, it's not just to save the so-called Muslims. You have to save all of mankind because everyone is affected by the same ills and everyone is affected by the same evils and everyone is affected by the same monetary system. So we have a great, great obligation and a task on our shoulders to actually do what is right and just according to Quran and Sunnah and leave the pettiness out, leave all these constant bickerings that we have. You know, Shafat, let me just tell you about that. I think I mentioned it before, but I might just mention it again. Mm. You see, if we call for the Sharia, Shafat, and if I say something about you that's either true or untrue, it's either going to amount to gossip or slander. Both of those attract the hudud, the Had punishment in Islam. So, if we say we are people of the Sharia, then we must submit to the hard punishment. Because if we, if we participate in slander and gossip and taking names and slandering, and, and then we must be brave enough to say, okay, I submit to the hudud. You see, it's like saying that the, the hand of the, the, the thief must be chopped off. But Sedna Umar forbade the striping of the backs and chopping of hands during the famine. You know there there was a suspension of that because he knew that it was there was no justice um in and people would steal because they were desperate so so we need to we need to take a see you know serious look at ourselves and say look we've gotta stop this and we've gotta concentrate on reestablishing the dean in its pure pristine form which is one aspect that I think has been demonstrated by the visitors to Qatar, they've seen Islam, they've gone into the mosques, they understand the absolute cleanliness surrounding the deen, the dedication to the prayer no matter what, um, the beauty of the Quran, I mean it moved, uh, said now Umar, who was going to have a fight with Rasul and he visited his sister. And then he heard the Quran, and he changed his heart. So, he, this is the effect that it has. And 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 uh, there are there are reports of people accepting Islam, etc. Because it is a natural deen. It is a form um, of uh, pure, pure worship uh, of of the Creator. Because there's no idol. There's nothing. But we mustn't make our own idols. Be it in the form of money. Or anything else, you know, we must we must move away from that.
0: Yeah, you made a very uh, powerful observation there. The azan was given in Qatar. The mosques were all open uh, for you know people to come through, and uh, you know in every corner they had uh, the uh, sunnah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi what he said and what you do and the uh, do and don'ts of uh, uh, you know of 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 uh, the teachings of Nabi sallallahu alaihi uh, I mean, in the face of heavy or uh, you know pressure. From the Westerners themselves, uh, you know, they were told, okay, uh, the Qatari said, no, no, certain areas we won't allow alcohol, uh, we will n- not allow the celebration of LBG, XYZ, and so forth, all that, you know. Uh, let's give them credit for standing up, even if it means, uh, a, 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 you know, a small segment of uh, the Islamic teaching. But they made a very powerful, powerful uh, sound, you know, where they said, hey, we won't uh, compromise. Uh, the teachings of Islam when it comes to your valueless system. How do you react to that, Ashraf?
1: See, again, Shabat, sorry, but, you know, for me, just a storm in the teacup. No? I mean, you say you can drink in this area, but not in that area. <laughs> you, you know, you're hot, you're hot. Go ahead. You're absolutely No, hot. I mean, for me, it doesn't make sense. You can drink in this area, not in the It's it's like it's mm. it's happening all over the world, but, you see, Shabbat. Let me ask you: What is the had punishment for dr- for being drunk? Is there any heart punishment?
0: Mm-mm.
1: There's nothing. Intoxication is not a had punishment. But when you participate in riba, you have declared war.
0: Wow! Allah has declared war on you.
1: Yes. Now you declaring war in turn because you're saying, "I don't, I don't accept. I don't accept uh, that there shouldn't be riba." So every transaction. Is riba based. That is a serious, serious concern for us. With that comes the uh, destruction of the fifth pillar of Islam, Zakat. Zakat has now become a private charity. It is not collected by the central authority. Collected, remember that. Sayyidina Abu Bakr went to collect the Zakat. The Quranic ayat is Khud, take the Zakat. So, Again, we have to re-examine our entire existence. We, we seem to be like in a, a, you know, in, a, in a hybrid state of existence, Shavad. We don't, don't really know what the deen is. And when it's said, then, then it comes as a surprise. Oh, okay. So Sayyidina Umar collected the zakat. He made the dua for, for, for you at the time of collection. He distributed it in 24 hours in the location. Um, In fact, there's there's some kind of rule that the zakat must must be distributed within 83 kilometers of its taking. So you can imagine that, right? I, I mean, just understand if zakat was in place, then those in debt would have been freed of debt. Then the one whose heart is inclined to the deen, now I can tell you, Shafat, let's say the Qatari said to every visitor, hey, when you come here, we're going to give you 10 gold coins. Their numbers would have been overwhelmed, overwhelmed in, in, in Qatar. If they said, look, we are debt free. We now want to free you. Your heart is inclined towards Islam. This is your, your you're in the category of Zakat recipients. You see, there's eight categories in Surah Tawbah, and we often overlook the last category. The heart is inclined to the deen does not refer to the people who are in the deen because you've, you're in the deen by the shada, You are covered by the other seven categories and Miskeen, Miskeen cannot be the only category. You know it's for the traveller, it's for the one in debt, it's the one fee sabirillah. So you can see that we seem to ignore all of the other categories. Then we go off and we give our zakat to private organizations. Where Where is the precedent for this? You cannot give your uh, zakat to a private organization that keeps it in the bank and then they they use it as if it's their own private funds. You see what I'm saying about the rethink, Shafat? I'm, I'm sorry, but this is a very serious thing. And, uh, uh, you know, if I don't, um, unable to say what I... No, and i'm open to correction if somebody can say to me look you're wrong on a b and c i'm quite willing to listen to this but that's my understanding of 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 where things have gone wrong
0: yeah it's a valid indeed and uh, you know we all are living in a world of magroor a world of deception allah have mercy on us and uh, you know as you said even the, the uh, islamic banking system uh i mean how can you be a rebuyer? Uh, institute and say islamic and have a branch you know or have a uh, a certain division calling it the islamic sharia compliant uh division and ashraf makes a lot of sense it absolutely is uh i mean we can say it boldly sitting against our own intelligence uh ashraf
1: we're sitting against our own divine decree. Man, you know we have to meet our creator Mm. and then we have to answer for what we've done with our time and our life. I mean, Shabbat. how many burgers can you eat? You know what I'm saying, and how many phone calls and phones you can be in? How much can you drive your fancy car? I mean, we really appear to have misdirected our attention. Now, as I said, it is not the responsibility of any Mufti, Alim or maulana. To give this guidance to us because we are not unlettered we know we have to find out and if this message reaches us and it has a small little awakening then we have to introspect further and say what is this deen because no doubt if you actually understood the deen it's mind-boggling if you understood the position of the Rasul Wasallam, it 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 it'll break you. And the proof of that is the Ashifa of Qadi Ayad. Now many people don't even know that it's uh, it's translated into English. I mean it's a it's a it's a, it's a massive massive uh, I mean it's 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 it is a massive work and you should get hold of it, the Ashifa of Qadi Ayad because it's mm-hmm. referred to in the best is ever and the teachings of uh, Islam and it's available. So there I'm saying you just have to start re-educating yourselves because you know somehow we also think that the madrasa must do the job, you know, and it doesn't and it hasn't. The the learning continues till till the last moment. The Sahaba were very old, some of them when they came into Islam, they never stopped learning. They never stopped travelling, they never stopped serving. Peace
0: abeelillah. Yeah, you make a valid, valid point. And again, you know, from the cradle to the grave, it should be all about learning. Rabbi, Zidni, Ilma, Allah, increase me in knowledge. And Alhamdulillah, lots of, uh, mashallah, thought-provoking uh, points are, b- are brought in uh, by our senior attorney, Ashraf Isop. And now uh, moving on to our topic uh, this evening, Ashraf, uh, you know, Ramaphosa's uh, review in Concord, uh, Concord. Uh, this is uh, you not know, something that is affecting uh, the country. Uh, there's uh, many political analysts uh, that are, you know, discussing uh, Cyril Ramaphosa at the moment. But it seems as if Cyril Ramaphosa has the backing of those that control and uh, patrol world economy, world leadership, and uh, uh, are hell bent on creating uh, mayhem in this dunya. I don't know if I'm. Uh, Uh, overreacting, but uh, your reaction, uh, Ashraf, and uh, let us hear the senior attorney himself uh, when it comes uh, to Surul Ramaphosa and his, uh, you know, review in the Concord,
1: uh, Ashraf. this is an interesting case indeed, uh, Shafat, because he brought an application for review uh, directly to the Constitutional Court, which is, you know, which has now brought about some debate. So he says that he can has he can have direct access to... So let's understand the hierarchy, right? Normally you'll have to go to the high court and then um, if they pronounce on some constitutional point and then you go to the Supreme Court and either it confirms or denies that and then ultimately it goes to the constitutional court. So in this case, the president was advised to bring... Uh, the application directly and he wanted to review the report of the independent panel that was, um, you know, that was referred to in terms of the rules of the National Assembly and particularly its recommendation. Uh, He refers to paragraph 264 of the report. He wanted it to be reviewed, uh, declared unlawful and then set aside. So, this is what we call a typical review process. Now, you've got to, you've got to prove uh, a number of things here. And um, basically, he was saying that you don't need oral evidence. And the application itself is sufficient for the court to make a judgment. And um, then he goes into the affidavit itself, which is quite, quite interesting. Now, just for the... Um, purposes of clarity, uh, this is a public document, there is a case number attached to it, it's available um, on the Constitutional Court website, uh, CCT, Constitutional Court 353 of 22, that's the case number. Now, he then brought this application as soon as the panel had finished its investigations, and uh, this is what he says. it's you know he, he's he, he his basic defense basically right is um number one that he disagrees with the findings uh because he says he was not in serious violation of any of the laws of the republic he can't be charged with serious misconduct nor was any evidence led about his inability to perform the functions of the office and now you see he says, goes to mr you know you know how this whole thing came about was mr zungulu zungula was the fifth respondent uh, he was from the african transformation um, the uh, you know a political party and he basically filed the complaint. Um, a, well, not a complaint. He said that the complaint was filed by Mr. Arthur Fraser and um, he said that, look, this requires a. Um, it, it needs it needs to be investigated in terms of the constitution. So the motion was brought by one of the opposition parties. Now we all know what had happened. Apparently, there was some uh, activity at the Palapala Farm. At that time, the president says that he was traveling abroad, which cannot be uh, gainsaid. In in other words, you cannot deny that. And that this happened in his absence. Uh, There were other charges there. Um, You know, one of them being that um, there was a large amount of dollars and dollars normally have to be deposited as soon as possible through your commercial bank and then the and the, the dollar is is then bought from you you see at a price and if you go now you're traveling and you're buying dollars then the dollars are sold to you at a particular price so basically What they were saying is that because the dollars were not handed over to the banks and it was stuffed in um, the sofa, uh, it basically gave rise to this theft. So it was interesting that the president said, look, I didn't know anything about this. Uh, Major General Ruder was in charge of this and he knows about this and um it's interesting that there was a private investigator called Paul O'Sullivan who, who was dragged into this and he had his own little side show about this and an interesting observations that he made one that he was never involved in this yet uh, Mr Fraser called him out secondly that um his belief was that the president had not done anything wrong there was no tribal offence but remember that this report said there was a prima facie case against the president that he had to uh, that he had to answer to some of the other allegations were made that uh, the perpetrators were tracked down to namibia and there was interference um you know where there was uh, a call to Namibia to say, give this thing priority attention, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of what I would consider like hearsay uh, that, that one can't really one can't really approve or uh, approve otherwise. But it's interesting, I think, when you look at the president's affidavit, which is quite a a, a uh, big document and it comprises 59 pages. And the affidavit then basically, you know, takes various points. Um, It also spoke about the legality of the panel process. Uh, Remember, there was some talk about some people sitting on the panel that had acted for other politicians that were involved in various uh, criminal charges. So, So there seems to be now something made about that. In any event, the president starts by discussing the panel's mandate. And uh, he says that he can only be removed for serious violation of the Constitution or the law and and serious misconduct. And he, sa- he says that uh, the definition of serious misconduct means unlawful, dishonest, or improper behavior performed by the president in bad faith. So he's saying that he never had bad faith. You know, he emphasizes that. Uh, he says that uh, you also have to mean behavior that was intentional or malicious. And he says I, he was never acting intentionally or maliciously. So that's, uh, you know, basis the basis of his defense. Now, he also says that in in the charge that in the finding that it must show the president committed himself, right, in person, serious violation of constitutional law. He says, I didn't do this in person. I didn't I didn't participate in any of these things. A in receiving the monies, B in storing the monies, C in even reporting. The money stolen he says these things were taken by or the, these actions were taken by uh, Major general Wally Ru and he's that is where the questions should be directed and not against me so now the question is shavan you know uh, one of vicarious liability you see normally a minister is held vicariously liable for the um, for the actions or omissions of its own employees or member of staff. So here the the president, I think, is saying that I'm not the minister of police. This is not my employee. I have no control over this employee, Major General Wally Roeder, and whatever happens um you know you must direct the 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 uh, the charges if any against uh, the particular individual the president also states that the panel misunderstood its mandate you see in two in at least two respects he says whether there was sufficient evidence or and whether there was a prima facie case and he says that the context of the removal the pre, from the president of the uh, removal of the president from his office is if there is sufficient evidence means based on the information received does the president have a case to answer and he says that the, the the panel basically said that prima facie there's a case against uh, uh, the president, and it is to be considered by the impeachment committee. Now, remember that this report also has to stand uh, the 201 votes in Parliament uh, for it to to basically uh, take it to the next level, which is the impeachment process. Then he he takes uh, issue with the uh, evaluation of the evidence by the panel. Uh, sorry Shafar, i hope
0: this is not boring to you i mean i'm uh, no no it's, uh, you know it's uh, actually intriguing and it's important that uh we as the umma get to know what's already happening and uh, it's quite an important thing because it affects every south african and you know this is the man uh, that uh, many had trusted and uh, he was painted as mandela's blue-eyed boy so uh, uh, don't feel guilty out of anything uh, you are absolutely doing a brilliant job go ahead ashraf
1: Okay, so he then says that um, he's, you know, he gave his evidence and he couldn't. They they ought to have they ought to have considered his explanation and the evidence that he referred to. And it should have considered whether the explanations provided undermine some sort of evidence placed before the Commission. And whether, if the evidence was left undisturbed, it would nevertheless prove sufficient for the charges. And then he says the inquiry did not start with the presumption that the charges were established. They just moved to consider the explanation and evidence provided. And that's why he says that the panel misconstrued what it was meant to conduct. Now, let's get to um the president's own uh explanation of of what really happened right now i'll try and find that directly from the uh affidavit because um th- i think that's important right that that we don't mis, uh, mis- uh, construe or misquote uh the president i think he was relying on um that the panel failed to test the admissibility of the evidence. He says that, um, you know, there was a lot of hearsay evidence. And he says in this case, um, that there was no cautionary rule applied by the panel uh, against the mandatory provisions against hearsay evidence. Let, Let me just explain to you what hearsay evidence is, right? Hearsay evidence is, A says, that I heard from B that this happened. So A himself is not in a position to testify directly that I saw this happen. He says, I heard that this is what happened. So this is hearsay evidence. And hearsay evidence is admissible if it has sufficient probative value. That means if it's su- sufficiently, um, you, you, you know, to, to to help us understand certain events. It may or may not be allowed. Uh, It depends on the circumstances. But basically, he says that there's hearsay evidence. Um, You know, he he speaks of Mr. Fraser's two statements, one to the SEPs and one to the public protector. And um, at, at one stage, I even heard, and I'm not sure if I heard correctly, but apparently the video clip, was not even according to the president you know evidence from his farm but there mr sullivan uh, raises an interesting point he says if the video clip was uh, was leaked or released who else could have done it and he points fingers at certain people you know so i don't know if you've come across that clip it was quite interesting to see his analysis of what has transpired here, but back to the president. The president says that there was a Namibian police report, and um, you know whether that was obtained lawfully or uh, unlawfully was, and that was an irregularity. It had to, you know, when you when you receive a piece of information. Um, Let's say you receive uh, uh, audio-visual information or a video recording. Then in a court of law, normally, uh, that is tested for, you know, to see if it was original evidence, if it was tempered in any way, uh, if it can be relied upon. You remember when there was a case against the judge that had crushed his vehicle into a wall um, and, you know, the uh-huh. uh, the the term uh, as sober as a judge comes to mind. Uh, but this judge was drunk and there was a recording of his tirade at the scene of the accident. And during the inquiry, there was all kinds of questions asked about the recording that was taken. How many copies were made? You know, was it mechanical? Where's the original? Et cetera, et cetera. So this is the kind of thing that the court will introspect about when looking at what we call um, digitally obtained evidence, in this case, uh, a video recording. So the president's attack on the confidential report by the um, Namibian authorities reached the panel by unlawful means, you know he says they should have inquired whether the report was lawfully obtained and excluded it if it came unlawfully. He says the opposite happened because the panel placed heavy reliance on that. Um, Now, he says the same goes for the audio clips, you see. He says it was a recording of an interrogation. And again, it says it the real possibility that the clip was reached unlawfully and that the panel should have also taken into account. And then to see if, whether the evidence was credible, he says the clip was not examined by the panel for credibility. So that's another angle of attack on regarding the uh, just not just the admissibility but the credibility of uh, the information. Now. In paragraph 83 the president makes the following submission says i submit as a real possibility this information came to the president possession of mr fraser illegally and it is unclear if any other information was known but deliberately suppressed by the same source now the president made you know his submissions regarding the fact that he thought that the both the audio clip and the so-called interrogation um, records were obtained illegally and therefore unlawfully and should have been discarded or should have been treated with caution by the panel. He says, look, you know, in, in summary, he says the panel failed to consider whether Mr. Fraser lawfully obtained the confidential reports and that in itself is an irregularity and it and it taints the, Numer- Numerian, the considerations of the Namibian police report as a bad reason. So that was basically how he dealt with the uh, evidence. And then they, he said that when they evaluated the evidence, it was irrational. And um, he says seriously that the the panel imposed a reverse onus on him. So. He says that this evidence means enough evidence. Now the panel then turn it around and say, okay, now uh, you have to now prove uh, that you you now have, have the onus of proving that there is no prima facie proof. He says prima facie proof means the evidence that discharges the party's onus if it is not rebutted. At the close of the case, so basically, what he's saying is, I didn't have uh, the onus to prove that I have a case to answer. You saying there's prima facie evidence that calls for an answer, and that I, 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 you, I, you have a tribal case, or that is sufficient for an impeachment inquiry. So again, he's. The president's taken issue with the rational connection between the approach of the panel and the evidence on which um, it it, uh, relied. Now, he gave a good good example, he says, of irrationality. So irrationality is a basis of a review, Shabbat. that's in law. You know, uh, a a decision has to be lawful, uh, rational, procedurally fair. So he says here in paragraph 96, um, he says, a good example of the illogical absence of evidence is the panel's conclusion of the the information placed before it discloses that I asked the president of Namibia to assist with the apprehension of Mr. David. He says the only information, not evidence before the panel, was Mr. Fraser's allegation. The rest of the panel's reasoning was based on nothing more than the absence of evidence to the contrary. He says the panel should have asked whether the evidence was sufficient to support its conclusion. There was no evidence, let alone sufficient evidence, because all the panel did was accept Mr Fraser's say so. And the rest of the panel's reasoning is illogical and irrational attempt to patch together evidence from an absence of evidence. So there you can see that he's now mm. taken a, a, you know, a direct approach to saying, here's an example of the illogical conclusions reached. Shabal, I no, don't
0: I, yeah, yeah, I think we've, we've run out of time, but uh, you've been very comprehensive and I really like that. And it seems as if uh, Ramaphosa looks at that panel as a RET group, you know, fighting. He's, uh, uh, I mean, the judiciary, I mean, every second minister and every government official is in court today some fighting the suspension and some uh, uh, many things happening. But Ashraf, absolutely brilliant indeed. I mean, we've got the gist of everything and perhaps your parting words are this evening.
1: Oh, the time has flown so quickly this evening. Shavad. We've covered so many different things. Lovely. And uh, first of all, you know, if I, anyone was offended by anything that I said, I ask for forgiveness for that. If I have erred in any way, I would welcome guidance from anyone there, Uh, and as always, we ask for du'as for the Ummah, uh, you know, through the trying times that we find ourselves, and also for everyone that is out there that is not feeling well, those that have lost their loved ones, we ask for du'as for them as well, and most of all, for us to have uh, an intelligent understanding of our deen and a sincere du'a to return to the deen. In its pure and pristine form, and as always, when you're reading your yasin, uh, remember us as well. Um, it's very important that uh, we continue that practice.
0: I mean, and immediately after the show, I will be reading one yasin, especially for you, my beloved uh, uh, senior attorney Ashraf. So, Ashraf, you have a beautiful, lovely evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. So wa rahmatullahi warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.
1: Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: Thank you very much. And now you are most welcome Ashraf. Time for us to go for the Isha azan and inshallah we will continue after that.